going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. So if you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. If you're a guest this morning, have, have you picked a day? I tell you. So we're, we're going really straight through the gospel of Matthew. This is one account of, of the life of Jesus, the life and teachings of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Of Jesus. And um, Jesus, the word of the Lord, talks about a lot of things, including things that you may not want to talk about at church. Um, and, and today is one of those things. So let me give you a little bit of backstory and then give you, this is your fair warning, okay? So if you, if you don't want to be here or can't be here to talk about sex, today is the, this is your opportunity to walk out with no shame, okay? Just you go right out of that door, right out this door. Maybe you've got the, the kids and you don't want to do, I've been giving you fair warning if you remember here, but today is the day where, where Jesus talks about this very important topic. Okay? Everybody good? All right. Great. Very good. So here's what's, here's what's going on in, in Matthew, and then we'll, 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 we'll jump right in. Matthew, as a writer, is trying to establish the identity of Jesus in chapters 1 through 4. You want to know the backstory. You want to know who his parents were. You want to know where he came from, how he was raised, how he got his name, what all that has to do with the Old Testament. That's chapters 1 through 4. Great stuff. Head to the website. Okay sermons there on Matthew 1 through 4. Okay. Then in Matthew 5, Matthew says, but Jesus is not just about where he, where he came from, who he is. You should have heard the guy preach. And so from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it is one long teaching section um, that Jesus gave. And it's not everything Jesus said in this one teaching session, but it's many of the things that Jesus said. And it's, so these are Matthew's recordings of it. Luke's got a version of it, too, there in his gospel. But so it's in that uh, that's where we are. We're in the meeting. It's like, this is an example. This is one of the sermons that Jesus gave. And it is a, uh, it's a doozy. And he begins by describing what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who lives in the kingdom of this world. We as Christians have different qualities, different traits that define us as, as citizens, okay, um, as of the kingdom in heaven. And those are listed out for you in verses 3 through 10 of Matthew 5. Noticeably absent from this sermon so far is any reference to the, to the Old Testament, to the Bible. Because usually if you're a Jewish rabbi, you would, you would open up a passage of Scripture and you would read and explain it and apply it. Read and explain it and apply it like I'm going to do today. But Jesus hasn't done that yet. And, and um, there were questions, even as Jesus had been going about and teaching, like, what is Jesus? He teaches with all this authority, and everything he says seems to be true, but he doesn't, not, he doesn't always, like, open the Bible, and there's nothing in this sermon yet about the Bible. What is, what is Jesus doing with the, with the Bible? What is his relationship to the Old Testament and the Scriptures? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is really important to understand because it, it impacts what we're going to talk about sex here in just a little bit, okay? So he, he says in Matthew 5, 70 to 20, listen, I, I, the Old Testament, I love the Old Testament. I'm not ending the Old Testament. I'm not loosening the Old Testament law. I'm not invalidating. I'm not abolishing the, the law. In fact, if, if you really want to read the Old Testament truthfully, it's about me. I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You can't read the Old Testament rightly if you don't see that it comes to me and points to, to me. And because it's about me, it's all about me, I'm all about it. 
So I'm not coming to abolish it, but you need to understand something about it. You've been reading it wrong if you haven't been seeing me in it. He would actually look the Pharisees in the eye in John chapter 5 and say, you read the scriptures because you think by them you have eternal life. The scriptures point to me, but you don't come to me for eternal life. They're reading it wrong. Okay? So then Jesus says, let me give you some examples of how you're reading it wrong. And last week he said, you know, you've, you've heard it said, don't murder. Well, let me, let me tell you what that really means. If you have anger in your heart, you're a murderer. And, and we, we, so we talked, about, we talked about that. And today, Jesus is going to the right to the next commandment underneath that in the Ten Commandments. It's number seven, I believe. Do not commit adultery. So you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Well, let, me, let me tell you what that really, really means. Okay? And it has significant implications for those of you who are married or single. Um, where, wherever, whether you have, uh, we're going to talk about divorce next week. So, every, there's so much of, of who we are as a human being as comes to marriage and sexuality and relationships. And Jesus was not about to leave all that alone because he cares for us and he loves us and he wants to bring the truth of the gospel to bear in our lives, okay, for his glory and for our, our good. So uh, let's uh, let be uh, careful, but I am going to use that, that, the word sex many, 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 many times, okay, more times than most Baptist preachers have probably ever said in their lives, okay. So, but I'm not, I'm not a Baptist, I'm not that Baptist, I guess. Uh, look with me in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, you ready? Okay, here's the first thing I want you to note. Remember, Jesus is, the law is about Jesus, so Jesus is all about the law. The first thing that Jesus does is that he affirms the whole Bible's teaching on sex. That's what verse 27 is about. Jesus affirms a biblical teaching on sex. He's not come to loosen or invalidate or abolish the law in any way. He is all about the law, and the law is all about him. So the first thing that Jesus does is he affirms a biblical view of sex in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. This is true. We don't commit adultery. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is going to address the manner in which it's being taught and the manner in which it's being understood. But he affirms that we are not to commit adultery. Adultery. Jesus is affirming that married people should not have sex outside of their marriage. And he is therefore affirming that sex within marriage and how important it is for marriage is great. Okay? The fact that Jesus is prohibiting sex outside of marriage, that's put in the negative. 
But that means he's affirming the importance and the beauty and the goodness of sex within a marriage. Okay? The law, don't do this, is protecting and pointing to the good, the positive the affirmation, but do it this way. Okay? And that's within marriage. And if you read your Bible just with that view in mind, the Bible does this all over the place. This was fun to find. Because you don't have to read your Bible super carefully to see that, that this is just all over the place. So go back to Adam and Eve, right? God brings Eve to Adam. You can read this in, was it two or three? What is it? I feel like we should go back and read it. Let's go back and read it. This, is, this will be fun. Chapter 2. So, verse 20. The man gives names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but no helper was found corresponding to Adam. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, and he slept. God took one of the ribs, closed the flesh in that place, and the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one... At last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken from the man. Do you know what this is? It's a love song. It's a love song, right? You got two naked people looking at each other. And no sooner has the universe come into existence than you've got two human beings naked singing love songs to each other. Okay? Go through the book of Proverbs. Tons of passages to help you celebrate and enjoy sex between a man and a woman who are married. Lots of it. Very practical. Very helpful. Song of Solomon. This is a whole book in your Bible. I don't even know where to start with Song of Solomon. Okay? Your Bible, I'll put it this way. Your Bible translators lose their nerve translating some of the Hebrew in Song of Solomon, okay? It celebrates sex within marriage in a ways that don't just make you blush. It's, it's beyond that. It's beyond the pale, okay? It would be really good to know your Hebrew if you want to read a Song of Solomon and you were married, all right? So, so, so this is all over the Bible, and, so, and Jesus is affirming this. The Bible has a very positive view about sex within marriage, and because it has such a positive view about sex within marriage, it has a very negative view about sex outside of marriage. So Jesus, the Bible, understands something about sex that the world at large desperately needs and even intellectually understands, but they just can't find their way to accept it. And, that's, and this, is what, this is what they miss. This is what the Bible teaches about sex. Intellectually, it's very honest, very compelling. It's just very easy to dismiss. Here's what it is. Uh, this is the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, sex is a covenant good, not a consumer good. Write that down. It's Tim Keller. Sex is a covenant good, not a consumer good. And here's what he means by that. Okay, and We'll talk more about this when we talk about divorce, but here, here it is too. So when you get married, you're not entering into a contract. You're entering into a covenant. Okay? When you, when you get married, you're not agreeing. You're vowing. Do you understand the difference? Okay? 
you're creating an entirely new reality when you get married, a whole new family, okay? So, so to get married is to enter into a true and complete vulnerability for the rest of your life. It's, it may take you 25 years to figure that out or more or less, but that's what you're doing. Complete and true vulnerability for the rest of your life. And the Bible understands and teaches that sex is a physical manifestation of that covenant reality. It's what you do when you're married to reflect the, the, the existential reality of your covenant. Okay, You've made the promise, you've made the vow, you've created this whole new reality... When you have sex as married people, that is a physical manifestation. I'm having a hard time talking already. It's a physical manifestation of what you've vowed and promised and formed in your family. Does that make sense? It's a covenant good, not a consumer good. So if you treat sex, which is a covenant good, like it's a consumer good, then you are going to be sexually frustrated. And what I mean by that is if you treat sex as a consumer good, even though it's a covenant good, your life, your sex life in particular, will lack integrity, lack joy, lack satisfaction that you were designed to have in your marriage. And if you're already married, entered into a covenant relationship, and at some point along the way you conclude that sex is not about a covenant but it's a consumer good, then you will conclude that anything you need to do to be sexually satisfied is completely justifiable and reasonable, and that includes a whole lot of things that I'm not going to say out loud, but adultery is one of them. Okay. Uh, in The Joyful Christian, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, The monstrosity of sex outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, which is the sexual union, from all the other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. You're, you're trying to, to do something that was made only to be done in this context. Okay? Keller, Keller puts it this way. He says, if you, if you have sex inside of a covenant, then sex becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a it's, it's a reminder again and again of the vulnerability and the, and the truthfulness of, of your relationship. You're, you're saying to your spouse, he says, Keller says it's like getting married all over again. You're saying to your spouse, I belong to you exclusively, completely, and I'm physically acting this out. What is true in this reality is true now physically, and this physical manifestation of it is a reflection of that truth. I'm giving you my body as a token of how I've given you my life, and I'm opening to you physically as a token of the fact that I've opened up to you in every other way. So, if if you use sex outside of that covenant purpose, what you're saying is something completely different. It's It's a consumer mindset. You're saying something like, I love the feeling that I get when I'm with you. You're taking something. You're not giving something. You're receiving and holding on to your own life in that, in that moment. You're holding on to your independence. So you're receiving and you're not giving. In other words, you're in a consumer relationship with that person. Okay. 
So Jesus, by affirming the seventh commandment, is affirming this teaching about, about sex. It's a covenant. It's a practice designed for covenant renewal and affirmation. And that is not hard to understand intellectually. And if you really think about it, if you really think about it, it's the only thing that makes sense about sex in any form. A covenant practice between a man and a woman. So you can argue about, and we, we do this, never mind, we'll do that next week. We got, I got two weeks on this, sadly. Okay, so excitedly, sorry, 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 sorry. It's just tough days, tough days, all right. Okay, so Jesus affirms it as a covenant, not as a consumer good. So if you're married and you begin to view sex as something other than a covenant, then adultery becomes something on the table, okay? Which takes us to the second thing that Jesus does in this passage, and that is, he says, look, it's, it's, you don't, I don't want you to commit adultery. Don't do that. It's bad for all the reasons that I just explained, okay? But your heart problem is worse than just not cheating on your spouse. Look at verse 28. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, not from the notes. Let, let me just say that if you're, if you're a woman, don't, don't think that you're not being addressed, okay? Jesus is predominantly talking to his male disciples and, a, and, a, and an audience that surrounds, but certainly would have included women. And so he's speaking in a way that would have been uh, culturally norm, but it is not gender exclusive. Okay? So a lust is not just a man problem, it's a woman problem too. That said, reading the verse on its own, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. And he goes, in his heart. Now, this verse is so classically misunderstood, so I'm going to walk through it super carefully. So the first thing I want you to see is, but I tell you, okay? Jesus is doing this again and again and again throughout Matthew 5, which is he's speaking contrary to the general uh, normal hearing that's being taught. Number two, he is establishing his own authority as a teacher, which means, number three, He's speaking emphatically and sternly in each one of these instances, okay? So I, I'm telling you, it's, it's more than traditional rabbinic tradition. It is the authority of the Son of God. We should feel that weight. Number two, here it is. What does he see? I tell you, everyone who looks, okay, um, a more literal translation of this would be... Um, I tell you that everyone who engages in the process of continually looking, you see the idea. So the, the, the act of lusting that Jesus is talking about is not like this inadvertent glance or this accidental glance. It's, it's the purposeful, repeated, and engaging looking and the things that go on in your mind as a result of that. Okay. So it's not lust to be attracted to somebody. It's not lust to notice that somebody is beautiful or handsome. It's not lust to have a strong desire to have sex, period. It's not lust to anticipate or be excited about having sex when you're married. It's not lust to experience sexual temptation. That's not lust. You see, you see my point. You see Jesus' point. And, it, and it, it's important that you grab this point because if, if you don't understand what Jesus is teaching, you can't know if you're being obedient or not. All right? 
you can't know if you're winning if you don't know all the rules. Okay? And you don't want to find yourself excusing some things as natural that aren't, and you also don't want to be walking around totally shamed because you're a human being with a sex drive. All right? Is it hot in here? Okay. Verse 28, I tell you, so the, uh, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, we've defined it, has already committed adultery within his heart. This is the part that we miss, okay? Jesus doesn't say everyone who looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery. It's not what he says. He says everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. Why? Because it's the fallen heart that leads to the lusting. The heart is the problem. We want to take it to the law, but the law is taking it to our heart. Jesus is driving it to the heart. No amount of not murdering a person is going to purify your heart when it comes to anger, right? No amount of not cheating on your spouse is going to deal with a lustful heart. You understand? The heart is the problem. You can keep the Ten Commandments Six and seven, those, all day long, every day, and it won't fix a lustful heart. Because our depravity is total. It is total. So that's the second thing that Jesus is doing. He's affirming a biblical view of sex, which is wonderful, and he is dry, using it as an opportunity to, 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 to expose just how unrighteous we really are. And how we need a righteousness that exceeds the outside, which is no righteousness at all. We need something else. So what do we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus is doing in this section what he's done last week, and he's going to do it every week through the rest of chapter 5. He is demonstrating again and again and again through different laws and teachings that, this, that an external Law-keeping obedience is just not real righteousness. It looks like it on the outside, but it's really not on the inside. We need the righteousness that only he can give us. Okay? It is really great that you don't cheat on your spouse. Don't cheat on your spouse. That's not going to change your heart. Your heart is a cheater. Okay? But a new heart does something different. There are practical manifestations of a new heart. Or as Paul says in Roman 8, of a, of a life in the Spirit. Okay? And so Jesus gives us an idea of what this would look like in verses 29 through 30. I love it. Look at verse 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Okay, any questions? I'm kidding. All right, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll explain. It is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So what is, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that you need to deal with sexual sin ruthlessly. Why is that the case? Because who we are is so tied to our sexuality that it, I mean, it cuts right to the core of your identity. This is why gender conversations and transgenderism and Surgeries for this. That is why it's so heated and so passionate and, and such a, an intense debate. 
It's one reason why. It's because who you are and your gender is so close to who you are tied in as a, as a human being, especially from a biblical perspective. So Jesus said we have to deal with sexual sin ruthlessly. Okay. Now, when you read, read 29 and 30, I hope you understand that this is rabbinic metaphor, right? J- Jesus is not being, to take him literally without the understanding that he's being metaphorical would lead to, I mean, we would have a lot of eye patches and prosthetics in this room, right? It, at least all of us, okay, <laughs> would, would, would have that, okay? Maybe the kids, would they'd be like, what's going to happen to me when I'm an adult? But, you know, but 14 is the kind of the age, um, just be a lot of that, right? But, but the other thing, you read this passage, you go, well, if Jesus is saying in verses 27 to 28 that the problem is our heart, then what's the point in doing this good work to make it better, right? Wouldn't it someone without a right eye or without a right hand yet still have a lustful heart, wouldn't they still also be, you know, in trouble? Yeah, I mean, their left eye would make up for all the you know, lack the right eye. Like it, we would, it would just same thing would go for our hands. Like it would just be, just be bad. So Jesus is not saying that there's a physical remedy for a heart problem. That's not what he's saying. Okay. By the way, it's interesting in church history, St. Anthony, <laughs> he moved out into the Egyptian desert for 35 years. I don't know if he dealt with his heart or not, but moving out in the desert for 35 years is not going to solve this heart problem. Um, Origen castrated himself. It's one of the early church. He, he castrated himself. He took, he took care of his ability to respond to the heart problem, but he didn't take care of the heart problem. So Jesus is not saying that there's a physical remedy for a heart problem. It's a rhetorical device. So if you're Jewish... The right eye and the right arm and the right leg. I mean, just, you know, Jews were right-handed people. And if you were left-handed and there's some references to people in left-handed, it was like seen as a weakness, okay? Um, to, to a Jew, a right eye and a right arm and a right leg are the best facility that you have, right? So Jesus is saying that it's not worth your best. It's not worth your best. He could have gone on down and said it's not worth your best best. There is, this is what Jesus is saying, there is nothing too precious to eliminate from your life if it causes your heart to lust. That's what you do with this passage. You say, there's nothing in my life that I must hold on to if it's causing my heart to lust. So if it's a smartphone, you don't get one. Okay, you get a light phone. Okay. If it's a movie, you don't go. If it's a television show you don't watch, whatever it is, nothing is too precious to eliminate it from your life if it causes your heart to lust. Okay? That's what Jesus means. Okay? And then secondly, well, what happens if you don't? Okay? Well, that's the end of verse 29 and the end of verse 30. If you don't, you're going to fall into a trap of complete and perpetual dissatisfaction and going to be able to get out of at some point. So so that's what Jesus means in verse 30. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body 
to go into, underline the word, hell. Lots of words that Jesus, Matthew, could choose for the word hell. Matthew chose the word Gehenna, which is actually a physical location just outside of Jerusalem near where Jesus was teaching. It was the dump. It was the Trinity Convenience Center in Williamson County. I don't know what y'all have here in Rutherford, okay? But it's the place where everybody took their trash and they burned it. And it burned and it burned and it was just, it's just always on fire. It's like that place out in Russia, right, where they were doing some mining. What's the name of this place? Where they, you remember the thing where, it, and they, they were digging and there's like natural gas started to leak, so to burn it off, they, somebody, one of the Russian soldiers threw a grenade into it. And, and it's still burning now, 50 years later. You can't go near it. It's just a perpetual natural gas leak. Okay, and it's huge, the size of a crater. It's unbelievable. That's what, this, that's what this place was. It just burned and it burned and it burned. It's always on fire, always on fire. It's huge, it never stopped. The fire was never satisfied enough to end. So whenever you see somebody in the Bible talk about hell and they use the word Gehenna, what they're getting at is that hell is a place of unquenchable thirst, unquenchable thirst, and it's unfilled long. It's a place where your longings are never, never, ever fulfilled. So what Jesus is really getting at here is he's saying, look, if you don't, if you don't protect your heart, if you, if you treat sex as a consumer good instead of a covenant good within marriage, you're entering into a life of perpetual dissatisfaction, which is painful. It's a place of despair. It's a place of emptiness and hollowness that will suck you dry. And, and here's the thing. It promises the opposite. Sex as a consumer good promises fulfillment. It promises satisfaction. It promises all the things that sex inside a covenant marriage will actually give you. And it holds it out and takes it away. It holds it out and takes it away. It holds it out and takes it and leads you into a place of constant and permanent dissatisfaction. And Jesus says, it's not worth anything else in your life to go down that path. It's not worth anything else to go down that path. Don't go down that path. Fulfillment and longing is only found in Him. And a sexual marriage covenant relationship is an expression of that. So when Jesus is saying here is that sex outside of marriage points toward that, that despair, it takes you down that road. It holds out the promise of absolutely destroys you instead. Okay. So Jesus is saying that if sex outside of covenant marriage points toward hell, metaphorically speaking, then what does sex within a covenant marriage point to? Him. You believe that? That's what, that's what it's ultimately about. That, that vulnerability that you've entered to, that completeness, that wholeness that you've entered into in your relationship with your, with your spouse, and the physical manifestation of that with your, with your, um, that you have when, you're, when, you, when you have sex. It is ultimately a worshipful and spiritual thing. Romans 7, Ephesians 5. 
love between a husband and wife is, is a foretaste and a pointer to what it's going to be like to, to, to enter into heaven into the perfect relationship with your Savior. That's, what, that's what's going on here. So yeah, we don't, we don't commit adultery. We, among all the other things I could list about sex outside of a covenant union, y'all know there's a list, right? Like, there's a whole lot of things I could say on that list that the culture embraces that we don't, but, but, that, but that we, in, their, in our sin, may do. Okay, all kinds of things. So we don't we don't do it. But there's a heart problem that we have to deal with, and no amount of keeping the commandment in a way that it may be very holy on the outside is going to deal with the heart issue. We need Jesus to give a new heart, and when He gives us a new heart, that heart is ruthless in its defense of a healthy sexual ethic, a biblical sexual ethic, because a healthy biblical sexual ethic sets us up to enjoy Jesus. Well, if you're married, this is the easiest sermon in the world to apply this afternoon or tonight or some other time, right? Yes. Don't be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word also, okay? Not a woman has said amen yet. We're on, thank you. See, it was just a matter of time. It wasn't my child this time. Can we pray? Because I'm really feeling hot. My ears are on fire. Lord, we are, we are grateful for your word. I st- it's my fault. I stepped into it. I walked right into it. Father, we're, we, are, we are. Listen, you've made us this way. This is an important to who we are because it points us to you. It points us to you. It directs us straight to you. So we want to be obedient and experience the joy that comes with it. And we want to be ruthless in our protection of it. Would you also give us some some wisdom about how to talk about this in our in our culture? I mean, I'm thinking about just being Southern Baptist. And we have an opportunity, therefore, to bring the gospel to bear in this world. And, and, and help the world understand the emptiness that comes with an unbiblical sexual ethic. So give us the, give us the confidence and the courage and to, be, to contend for the gospel in this way. And, the, and, the, and here's, oh Lord, help us understand this. Thank you for bringing this to mind. Everybody in this room has the heart problem, which means we have sinned in this respect, perhaps even yesterday. And so we celebrate the fact that you meet us where we are right now. You meet adulterers or other compromisers in the biblical sexual ethic. You meet us right where we are to repent and start anew. So for those of us that need that forgiveness and that understanding, grant it to us now because it's true and it's real.